Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VO. In this episode, I am joined by the one and only Tom Bennett, author of Running the Room, founder of Research Ed, and the man appointed by the UK government to advise them on behaviour in schools. Tom is incredibly open and has said in his book about how he was untrained and hapless at behaviour management in the past. His words, not mine. However, Running the Room is a systematic and beautiful guide to behaviour written by a man who has observed behaviour management across hundreds of schools. I must be honest and say that I'm a big fan of Tom's candour and approach to evidence-based education in this book and more generally, but he is not short of his critics on Twitter. So in this episode, I was a little bit cheeky and we discussed the joys and pitfalls of having a strong opinion on Twitter And we also explore the recent debate around school exclusions, as well as the many merits of running the room. Tom is incredibly passionate about education and improving behaviour in schools, and I loved the opportunity to chat with him, and I am sure you will love this episode too. If you like what you hear, please do follow or subscribe to this podcast. It helps us more than you know. So good morning, Tom. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. What a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's, it's been a long time coming, but here we are at last. <laughs> uh, the pleasure is all mine. And um, obviously, we're here today to talk about Running the Room, which is which is a fantastic book. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's the kind of book that I wish existed when I was trained to be a teacher. I think it would have saved me a lot of pain, personally. Um, and I, I'd love to delve into that in a lot more depth but I think there's so much more to this conversation than than just the book because you've had quite an illustrious career from being a teacher to um, the the government's behaviour SAR um, and also involved in things like uh, founding Research Ed which is obviously a huge um, uh, influential organisation which is um, very well respected and appreciated by lots of teachers um, all across the UK and, and further afield. I thought it'd be great to start off with a little bit of a, um, a, a brief explanation about your journey towards founding Research Ed. What, what made you think of it in the first place? Why did you think it was important? And um, how did you set out about setting it up? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I have to be quite clear here, is that it, 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 you know, it succeeded despite my best intentions. I, uh, you know, I was I was a teacher, full time teacher, and yeah. I used to tweet a lot and blog a lot and so on. You know, back in the old days, and one of the things that I found really obvious everywhere I went in education, people were making these big bold claims about things. Yeah. You know, like uh, you know, group work is best, or or, or you know, we, you should always set homework once a week, or or, or trips to teachers is going to have a great impact because soldiers are naturally better at behaviour. You know, there's claims everywhere. And what I, what I was amazed by was there was never very much evidence for anything that people said. People could say anything. And so I, I literally just started to blog about, you know, what's the evidence behind this? And I've got I've got a degree in philosophy, which is why I ended up working in bars um, yeah. for so long, because it's completely unemployable. But but one of the things, the one thing I took away from a philosophy degree was epistemology, theory of knowledge. How do you know anything? Yeah. Theory, you know, the, and then the philosophy of science and so on. How do you know anything? And I realized that people in education could say anything. It was... It was an absolute cauldron of scoundrels. Mm. You know, it was a petty dish of bullshit. Yeah. If you really like saying so. Sorry, you probably bleep that out. No, um, that's fine, don't worry about it. You know, and it was, and, and, and it was all 
often very well-meaning people, but there didn't seem to be what I thought was a kind of robust, substantiated and coherent body of professional knowledge that informed education, which I thought was weird. And then, so, so, you know, I got into things like cognitive psychology and developmental psychology, which at least was the most robust of the social sciences, which some people would say isn't saying much anyway. And I put a tweet out one night after a conversation with Sam Friedman and Ben Goldacre uh, online. I mean, I, I think I, I was watching, what, what, what was it now? G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Oh, right. Okay. So, it was, so it was a late night evening, you know, with a glass of whiskey. And, um, and I was having this kind of Twitter chat. Obviously, I'm very focused at this point. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, you know blah, 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 education. And Sam said, you should put a conference on about this. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. So I tweeted, does anyone want to help me with the conference? And it blew up in my face like 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 a like a jack in the box. Yeah, you know, and and, uh, and everybody wanted to do it, and it just took off from there. And what I think it tells us is that people were crying out for a more evidence informed discussion about it. And so we started researching. The first one went nuts, yeah. and and, pe- and I thought that was it. And then people said, "Can we have lots more?" And we've ended up now, in, I think, in about eighteen countries. Yeah, uh, you know, and we, we've had we've had you know. The, nearly 100,000 participants and several thousand speakers and so on. And it's gone brilliantly. And I think the reason why it's done well is because it is zero profit, no employees, no salary. It's it's done for the love of it. It's done because it needs to happen. And because of that, you can do it very, very cheaply. I mean, I don't get a bean out of, out of it. It's very much a labour of love, but my God, what, what, what a thrill it's been. And you kind of inadvertently stumbled upon a huge need there as well, like, like what you were saying before in terms of how quickly it it took off. I think it what you're saying what you're saying there about it being free and um, created by volunteers almost is I think really important. But also there was this huge lack almost of this uh, evidence based voice um, within education that that you've kind of created. And you think of comparable careers like being a lawyer or being a doctor. You know you've 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 got that kind of evidence base there so i think what you've the work that you've done with research has been so important and and really changed the dialogue around teaching and, and the way people approach opinions as well um with within education and, and how they look for evidence now more readily when they say things rather than just you know saying things because they have an opinion on it thank you i mean i hope so i mean i, I genuinely hope it's made some kind of difference to the type of discourse that we have and i think it has because everyone talks now about being evidence informed yeah I mean, I, and, whether and they, they are or whether they're not, they talk yeah, about yeah, it. Absolutely, you know, whether they're leaning on the ropiest of evidence or not. But at least people are thinking about it. Yeah. One of, the, one of the most powerful questions anyone can say in a school is when they walk into a school and say, you know, how do you know this? What's the evidence for this? So, if, so you know, if you're a, and, and really empowers you, and this is what being a profession is about. And this is why I think teaching isn't yet a profession. I think it's a semi or a demi profession because we don't have an agreed accepted body of knowledge like, for example, medicine tends to have about you know what what blood is for and and, and yeah. you know you know how you do a stitch and so on and, and while there's lots of disagreements about fine details there's broad agreement on the big big chunky matters um and i think we're getting there and it, and it makes you powerful if you're a professional because it gives you authority so if you're yes. a teacher or, or an nqt and someone says to you right we're going to move to a weekly marking policy mm. you know obviously you don't have the power to say no but you do have the power to say oh that's interesting why are we doing that? Well, what's the evidence for this? How do you know this is going to make an impact? And what impact are you expecting? And how will you know if it's going to be successful? And those really simple empirical questions suddenly turn us from dupes 
and stooges yeah. and and you know and help you and helpless, <laughs> helpless, incredulous uh, victims of circumstance to active participants and agents in their own destiny. And I think that's nothing but a good thing. Yeah, and I think that uh, approach to evidence and um, uh, and thinking rationally has, has always come across in, in your Twitter voice as well from what, what I've seen. I started following you on Twitter fairly early on because I respected your work with Research Ed, but also I think you're actually pretty damn funny as well uh, on Twitter. You've got a good wit about you. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes you tackle some subjects where, where in education there are so many opinions and um, there's not always a, a clear right or wrong answer with, with mm. some of the things that we, we stumble oh, across. Yeah, and um, and you, you, you have to deal with, you, you have your fair deal of support and you also have your fair deal of criticism on, on Twitter as well. Why, why do you think that is? I, th <laughs> I, th I think it's natural to have people disagree with you. I mean, in, in fact, I think it's weird if people don't disagree with you. Mm. Because if you stand up for anything, then, you know, people are going to disagree with you. I mean, what, what, one of the things I've said before is that you can say literally anything on Twitter and someone's going to think, what, you know, think you're an evil person for saying it. And, and even if you don't say anything, people will say, well, why aren't you talking about something else? And, you know, that's just people and that's just the nature of discourse. And you can say something like, you know, I really like cheese. People would say, "Ah, your you know your silence on harm is telling," and you're like, "What?" Just I was hope I was hoping you could use that quote. I saw that in another article, and I was like, set, "I hope he uses that quote." You set the line up right, um, <laughs> but it's true. And and you know, I mean, I remember. See, I used so I studied philosophy, and I used to teach religious studies and philosophy. And I am totally at peace with the concept that somebody could disagree with me and still be a nice person and mm -hmm. still be my friend. Yeah. You know, I used, I used, we used to spend, you know, hours and hours and hours in our classes and, and at school and at university, you know, passionately debating about, you know, deontology or, 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 or empiricism or, 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 you know, or, 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 you know, some kind of, you know, petty theological point. And then you go and have a drink with the person afterwards because, because it matters, but it doesn't matter. And I find that a lot of people don't have that in their, in their repertoire, in their intellectual armory. A lot of people think, if I disagree with somebody, they must be a bad person because they've so internalized and so personalized their beliefs. And also because they're so persuaded and convinced that they must be correct. Yeah, yeah. And I always retain, you know, I always retain a pinch of healthy philosophical skepticism about my beliefs. I know how hard it is to be certain about anything. You know, in fact, I think, you know, certainty is, is overrated. I mean, I think Descartes was the one who talked most eloquently about this. And the idea that, that you, know, you can have a strong opinion but, but still be wrong is something we should always entertain. And the ability to entertain why somebody else who disagrees with you might also be right is also a very healthy thing to do. And also, the world is full of arseholes. So, you know, I mean, you put that all into the mix. I'm swearing so much. I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> um, and when you put that into the mix, <laughs> you know, you get a lot of disagreement. But, you know, the weird thing is, is that, I discovered something about Twitter, which is, is you know, I'm, I'm gonna, it's a bit of a secret, so I'm going to hope you, your listeners can lean into the radio where I say this. Block people, right? <laughs> now, block people who are rude to you. Block people who say you're a prat, or block people who, you know, am I, if I say something like, I think mobile phones should be restricted in the classroom, and they go, you monster, why do you hate children? Block. You know, and, and why wouldn't you? If somebody walked up to you, to, if a stranger walked up to you in a pub, and said, you're a wanker, I would walk away. At the very least, I would walk away. You know, I don't get into fights and confrontations. I'm happy to discuss. 
Mm. But, but also, it's my time and it's my timeline. Yeah, and, and it's just, that energy as well. You know, do you want to have to deal with that? Absolutely. That negative I, energy. If I'm putting the kids to bed in 20 minutes and I've got like five minutes, for, you know, I've, I've got three sitting on the couch looking at my phone. I want to look at things I enjoy and talk to people who are polite to me at the very least. I may not want to argue for the 50th time that day with somebody who believes children work best in groups. You know, so I might just not, I might not respond to it. And if they say, why haven't you responded to me? Your silence is telling. I just kind of go, well, you know, you're, you're, you're a bore. Yeah. And why wouldn't you? And I just find it weird that people get this kind of weird sense of ownership over your time. And, you know, I don't have more than 24 hours in a day just like anyone else. And I'm on Twitter a lot. You know, yeah, I, yeah, give, yeah. I give a lot of my time to these debates. So, yeah. I, you know, I have zero, I have zero um, pity or, or, or time. I don't even waste scorn on these people who get really upset about it. I just block people who are rude to me or racist or unkind. You know, and it's not... It's a weird place, isn't it? I mean, you, you get some amazing discussions there. Where you, which you wouldn't get anywhere else, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you can get these threads with, but you can also take something like a moral panic, and it goes on Twitter, and then all of a sudden it all blows up out of proportion. And people have uh, very, very can can get, like you said, very emotional about specific things. Absolutely, I think that um, I, saw, I once saw Daniel William talk about this, and he was really eloquent about it in, in New York, and he said um, that people don't just think rationally; people think emotionally as well. Yeah. And, and emotions inform a lot of what we believe and what we choose to believe and what we like to believe and so on. It informs the people that we hang out with and so on. And so you don't get the clear light of reason illuminating everything on Twitter. I mean, it, it peeks through. Yeah. But what you but what you get is, is, is frequently people who form tribes and groups and clans and clubs and they have very strong tribal loyalty. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm immune to that incidentally because it's a human, it's a part of the human condition. We are social animals. Yeah. Well, you say it in your book. Well, absolutely. And, you know, if if you get someone who disagrees with me on, you know, learning styles or something like that, and then I block them because they call me a, a prat, and then here's what always happens. They find other people who've been cast out into the darkness. What are learning styles, Tom? Exactly. He blocked he blocked me because of learning styles. You know, he's a bad person. Oh, yes, I just asked him a question. And this is just like the kid who says, I got detention for asking a question. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's usually nonsense. So anyway, I call them the League of Supervillains. I just kind of cast them into the Phantom Zone and, and, and say goodbye to them and I, and I don't lose any more time about it until I get asked about it on podcast. Well, I can really relate to your philosophical upbringing because I also study philosophy and, uh, at university and I remember my... I knew you were a good uh, person. Uh, <laughs> I remember my philosophy lecturer saying, you know, by the end of your degree, all your friends will hate you. I mean, your friend will hate you. Um, and, you know, and I did consider having very deep thoughts about being unemployed. My mum's still waiting for me to be an accountant or a lawyer. Um, it, it is not something that you go into with career prospects, but it, it nourishes the soul and, and it gives you the ability to think critically and to argue with people rationally um, and to try and find some kind of truth in in. in complex problems where it's sometimes difficult to find so i can relate with with a lot of that and to take that philosophical angle i think one of the things which because on behavior management is quite a motive topic and behavior in children is quite a motive and i think one of the um criticisms you sometimes get is that your approach can be quite utilitarian um you know the, the greatest good for the greatest number and there are other people that um view sometimes that you know the the, the child has to come first i'm not saying that your approach doesn't put the yeah. child first um what what do you say to those kinds of uh voices 
Um, well, God, there's a lot to say about that. Because <laughs> you've opened up a can of worms here, right? So there is no moral. I mean, th- th- this is perhaps for a more specific audience, but there is no general model of ethics which successfully appears to resolve every single moral dilemma. Mm. You know, utilitarianism—the greatest good for the greatest number, roughly speaking—is is a very strong principle in most of our moral reasoning, because. Yeah. Because we do often think about things like that, you know, would would you shoot down a plane before it hit the twin towers? That type of thing. Mm. Um, and we do it all the time in our lives. You know, how can I obtain the best good and the, the greatest pleasure or whatever? But then, of course, we you know we bump up against deontology and the idea that people have got rights, and sometimes rights conflicts with utility. And we have to remember that you know, um, even though it might be good for four people to kidnap somebody and steal all their organs. Yeah. Killing them but saving four people. Now that's utilitarianism. But of yeah. course, as human beings, we believe in some kind of sense of intrinsic dignity, which can't be encapsulated by the you know the categorical imperative, which means that we believe in rights and that you know, even if it would benefit more people, that person's got rights and you can't do it. So there's always that conflict. And there's you know, there's more there's broader dimensions too, of course. There's things like you know, uh, you know, virtue ethics and practical ethics and, and you know Aristotle and so on. No moral theory encapsulates everything we do. And to be honest, this is the one place I've found that philosophy and political philosophy has been useful. It's thinking about how do you run a community, a classroom or a school. And at times you'll have to think about rights. You know, no matter no matter what, you don't put a kid, you know, you don't put a kid in a in a in a locked room, even though you know it might benefit all the other, other children. Um, but at the same time, you also have to observe the tension with that utility. So I am painfully aware of this in ways that many people sometimes are not. And secondly, the types of approaches which I tend to advocate in schools benefit the most people the most, but also take into account individual rights. Yeah. So, for example, that's why I believe in routines and norms as being the building blocks of a school's culture. That there have to be common expectations of what people are supposed to do under normal circumstances. If there's not, you have chaos. Now, here's the interesting thing. Chaos benefits nobody apart from the brutal, mm-hmm. you know, the strongest, the people who thrive on chaos, the Trumps of the world. Mm-hmm. He's strong, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you know he, he, he's he's the he's the he's the the animal in the, in the wild, um, and the type of approach that I mentioned are rising tides that lifts all ships. So the children who benefit most from calm, structured, orderly schools are children from situations of disadvantage. Yeah, are children with SCND, children with AS, ASD and SEMH. Let me give you an example. I chaired a, pan, a panel for the DFE in 2018 revising the advice that we give to schools on maximizing mental health in schools. Yeah. And what we found was that, I mean, obviously things like CAMS and so on is a bit of a mess. So what can schools do to benefit mental health? The best thing they can do is create an environment which is safe, yeah. which is calm, and where people are treated with dignity. I mean, fancy, I mean, fancy that. And if you've got SEMH, for example, those are the types of environments which minimize the triggers which exacerbate you know, negative symptoms of SEMH. And not only that, but calm environments are places where you can see the emergent symptoms of SEMH. And it's just, you know, it just, it just, it's just the best thing for everybody. Children with ASD need calm, safe, structured environments, which are predictable. Yeah. You know, children with ADHD need calm, structured, predictable environments where their particular needs can be attended to in a more boutique uh, circumstance. So the people who say that are, they're just wrong. And, and, and they're spectacularly wrong. In fact, they're dangerously wrong because they're advocating approaches which make schools less safe for everybody, particularly the least advantaged. So in situations that they advocate, the rights of human beings are minimized. So mm. put that in your pipe and smoke it. 
<laughs> and you give a good answer. I want a role here. I want a role. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I, and I think this leads us really well onto your book because I think if anyone reads your book from cover to cover, they'll see straight away. You know, um, you've got some really wise advice in here, some very pragmatic advice. But you're also not afraid for a little bit of self-deprecation as well. Um, you know, you're quite honest about your your background. And I, when I read your introduction, it was like looking into a mirror, um, <laughs> honestly. And uh, I mean, I'm going to tell you my experience. I know you haven't asked for it, sure. but I'll tell you anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, you, you went worked in clubs before you um, went into, into teaching. I worked in a pupil referral unit and as a street dance teacher and was very successful at managing behavior in that context. And I went into teaching and I was a spectacular failure right, at okay. behavior management. Um, it was the biggest failure of my career. And I would wrestle with it every night, the guilt of you know the, the students, because yeah. I really cared about it as well. I wanted to do my best for the students. Um, <laughs> and I'd wrestle about it every night. And, uh, and I, 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 didn't, um, I didn't finish my full training. I, I left after the first oh, really? year. And I stayed in education ever since, because I was still very passionate about education. And when I read your introduction, you could see a lot of similar themes there. Although obviously you came out the other side and continued teaching for a few more years. And now, I mean, the, the, the greatest transformation for someone who struggled with behavior management early on in their careers. Now you're now advising schools all over the, all over the world on behavior management. I mean, what would you say to trainee Tom um, if you could meet yourself back in that first year, but with all the knowledge and experience that you have now, what would you say to Trainee Tom? I would say quit. Quit now. <laughs> quit now. It's going to that's be awful. Was, that's what I would have said too. It's going to be awful. No, no, not at all. Of course I wouldn't. Of course I wouldn't. The, the weird thing is, is that no matter how difficult your life's been, mm. um, I've, got, I've got two amazing children and a wife that I love. And I always think to myself, no matter how, you know, I, I took some pretty rubbish turns in my life and I made big, big mistakes. But, it brought me here, and I, you know, and I'm and I'm grateful for that, and I'm at peace with that. But um, but that's a wee bit of a detail. But going back to, to to what I would say to them then, when I was when I was trained as a teacher, and I was trained in what is apparently the number one education training school in the world, right? So take that with a pinch of salt, if you will. Um, and I learned nothing about behavior management. I learned nothing about behavior management. Not a damn thing. I think I got a 45-minute behaviour lecture. Everyone attended it. But, but, you know, but it wasn't great, and I didn't learn very much from it. You know, and it didn't mean anything to me because it's like telling someone how to drive a car by telling them how to drive a car. And I don't think it was particularly good, particularly good advice anyway. I think it was all about, you know, earn their respect and build a relationship and all that bull, um, which means nothing to people. because, because well, I mean, even in Europe... And this is what I mean about self-deprecation. You even joke about that, about your own book. Yeah, you, know, you, you, know, you say in your book, um, you know, uh, reading this book was hopefully useful, but, you know, it, you, it, you yeah, yeah. can't teach yourself to drive by reading the highway code. Um, this is just like going through the jungle, but at least you have a map. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and to be honest, I remember, I think I put that on page 200 or something. I said, well, by now you've got the book, so haha, joke's on you. Um <laughs> The point is, though, that, there, that there's good advice and bad advice you can get in books. And I hate to say this, but, and, and, and I don't mean this for any specific people, but most of the behaviour books out there aren't very good. Mm. And, and I don't say that because they're, I think they're wrong. I, I don't mean anything personal about the people who wrote them. They're, you know, they're all well-meant. Yeah. Um, but, but there's often there's often really, really bad advice in some of these books. 
Um, and I just thought to myself, this just this just isn't working, you know. And the, the standard advice you give to people just doesn't seem to work in a real classroom with challenging kids. It might work if you've got a class of really biddable children who are all the sons and daughters of Swiss diplomats. But 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 let me give an example. When I walk into Costa Coffee and I ask for you know a flat white and a chocolate twist, which, you know, in case you're interested, and you know the barista gives it to me without a fuss, and I give her money and I walk away, and we're all happy. Now. In a sense, I've kind of controlled her behaviour. But how, how did that happen? It happened because she knew what to do. She's got good habits. You know, she knows how to make a coffee and it's, it's easy for her. It's not too difficult. And also she thinks this is what I should be doing. You know, so it's a combination of knowledge, habits and values. Mm. And, and same, the same with me. We both know how we're supposed to behave with one another. So in that circumstance, it's easy to get her to make me a coffee because it's the job and it's the contract and it's the deal and the agreement. Now, when you walk into a classroom full of kids, who are already brimming with great social skills and they believe the school matters and they love their, maybe they love their subject and maybe they don't. But you walk into a class like that and you say, everyone get your books out and they just do. And you think, oh, this behavior management's really easy. Mm-hmm. But if you take away one of those three things, it's bloody impossible, yeah. which means you're going to start building that kind of stuff up with them. And my whole book is about teaching you how to build up, how to teach children behavior because mm-hmm. behavior is taught. And it's not something we're, all, we're born with. None of us are born with knowing how to tie a tie or iron a shirt or take a book out of a library. These are learned rituals. Some children learn loads of these social skills and some of them don't. And, and in the same way that you know, children enter into a classroom with different levels of aptitude in French or something like that, you can't assume everyone's the same. It's the same with behavior. It's a curriculum which is taught, so we need to teach it. And I wish I'd, I wish I'd known, that's why we're told Tom, Young Tom, younger Tom, thirty-year-old Tom, when I when I entered the classroom, that behaviour had to be taught, yeah. that it wasn't something you got by being funny, mm-hmm. or, or 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 by you know or by shoehorning in relevance into your lessons, or making the lessons easier, or turning it into a game. That's not how you get good behaviour. You get good behaviour by teaching kids how to behave, and also by teaching them why their behaviour matters. And I guess lastly, by teaching them that they matter too, and that you care about them to some extent and that what they do matters to you. If I could um, if I could sum up the book in one sentence, I would say, <laughs> I'll see whether you like this or not, but I would say um, it, it, it's an approach to preempting behaviour rather yeah. than reacting to behaviour. As and the most teachers, core theme. Yeah, most teachers go into the classroom because I've never been taught behavior management, I mean, they literally have never been taught behavior management. They've heard a few kind of um, airy, gaseous uh, aphorisms about it, but they haven't really been taught about it. Yeah. Um, they've read the back of the book, but they haven't read the book, and the book's rubbish anyway. Um, they, have, they basically fall into this kind of, I don't know how to manage behavior, so I'll just try and teach. Mm-hmm. And when they muck about, I'll do something about it, which is a purely reactive model. And I, so I don't blame teachers for doing this. I did this. You know, if somebody mucks about, I will tell them off. And then you fall into the, I'll tell you off or I'll give you a sanction so on, uh, cycle. Now, sanctions are incredibly important. But if you only use things like sanctions, then you'll have a really hard time with some classes because some kids will go, I don't care about your sanctions or I'm not turning up. And they'll push you and push you and push you until you start giving up, which is what many of us do. And I did. Mm-hmm. And so sanctions are the backstop of your behavior management. They're essential. Anyone that tells you, oh, I don't use sanctions, get stuffed. You need sanctions. You need to have it. You might not use them, but you have to have them there in the background. Um, but behavior management is teaching behavior. If I want you to behave well as a driver, 
I teach you how to drive. I don't say don't hit things. Yeah. I teach you how to drive. You know, it's the difference between telling you what not to do and telling you what to do. And I guess you could call this a very, very muscular version of positive framing, but it's much more than that. It's, you know, this is what you need to do. And let me tell you, let me teach you, let me make it easy for you by teaching you how to do it, as opposed to hoping you know already, <laughs> which means that the advantaged children will do well and the disadvantaged children will fall by the wayside, which is why I get so passionate about this, because the people who advocate for any other method are essentially advocating for disadvantaged children to find it really hard to succeed in a school. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I mean, you use so many great analogies in the book. You did philosophy, right? So you, know, you write so many, so many analogies. Uh, and one of them yeah. I think stuck out for me, which was around, you know, um, the different strategies to deal with behavior. So if you've got a building that's built, with, out of wood and you've got loads of fire engines outside ready to go immediately if there's a fire you know it might seem like a good strategy to to have all of that all of that ready to go um a quick reaction put the fire out but once the fire starts in that kind of environment the damage is already done whereas you've got yeah. another building where it's been built with concrete they've got safety doors and the, the architects planned for the for the chance of a fire in advance and set up the culture and the environment so 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 um to such a level so that if a fire does break out it's already kind of contained regardless of whether or not that reaction is mm. there um and i think that's such a core analogy um and and piece of imagery to the to the whole um approach to the book of how you can set up that that culture or that environment yeah. for you even and i think that would have been incredibly useful for me to have um well, I'm sure people probably told me at the time when I was training, but I probably wasn't listening. Well, but I think I if, I, if I'd had the chance to, to read your book, I think it would have saved me a lot of pain. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad to hear that at the same time. It's you know, sad for you as I was sad for myself that nobody yeah. ever said these things. The idea was you would walk into a school and just kind of pick it up by osmosis, you know? Mm. But the problem is, is that many teachers who are really, really good at this don't or can't articulate it. They just do it because they do it. And so basically you're... You're expecting novices to watch experts and learn what experts do by watching experts, which is as absurd as asking me to learn how to be a ballerina by watching Darcy Bustle. You know, mm -hmm. she's too good. I don't know. Sure, you give it a good crack. Yeah, you know, please. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're Mr. Street Dance. Um, but, you, but you know what I mean? I, or, or by watching uh, Andy Murray. I'm yeah. thinking, oh, right now I can play competitive international tennis like Taskmaster from Black Widow or something. No, it doesn't work like that. And what you need to do is understand that people need this stuff explained articulately and explicitly. And that's why we've kind of shambled and stumbled. Every single cohort has had to reinvent the wheel. No more. Let's lay down some train tracks and, 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 and railway lines of this is what you probably should be doing. And once you've done that, then you can develop your own system and, and, and so on and be better than what I've told you, but at least have this small emergent foundation of, of professional knowledge in terms of how people react and respond in classrooms. That, honestly, that, that, if anything, that, I want that to be my legacy. Mm. That, that's my contribution to the ecosystem, that it's the beginning of professionalization, rather than simply the perpetuation of this sense of anything goes and everyone's, everyone's opinion is equal. And, ah, well, you know, all depends on the context and all, all that stuff, which, which deprofessionalizes us. Mm. And you've, in, in the book, you've laid out in different chapters, really pragmatic sections for how you can implement this, this culture. And I think it's fair to say a lot of the stuff there is not new, it's not new stuff. It's just been explained in a very, very um, clear and actionable way. And actually it's in some, 
uh, and your writing style is quite poetic at times and quite um um you know uh, uh engaging to read um but i think the uh, what what you've laid out for for people here is with with real utmost clarity exactly how you can break down these things that have been that has existed in education for a long time like routines like um scripts um uh, and sanctions and rewards and so on and so forth yeah. in a way that people people can follow um did you think that laying out these things that have been around for a long time but with that kind of clarity was uh kind of like a calling or really important for for based on the background that you've come through in terms of struggling with behavior management early on in career did, did it feel like something that you kind of had to do I th- it was one of those i think sometimes the universe puts you where you need to be i mean i don't mean that literally because i'm not spiritual but i think that um i, I writing about behavior combined two of my loves which was um, writing, and I, I adore writing. I used to write, even when I was working in clubs and bars, I used to come home at three o'clock in the morning and write a thousand words, and they weren't very good words, but I don't care, you know, they were words. Um, that's my first love, and the second love is, is, is not being spat on by kids. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's an ambition I've always had. And, and I kind of tumbled into behavior management because I just wanted to write about it because it perplexed me that there wasn't a lot of good writing about it, and I didn't know the answers myself. And so I went to lots and lots of schools and started to write about it and read all the books I could. And it took me five years of teaching to even realize there was something you could do to manage behavior. I thought it was all about, you know, do they like me or not? Mm. Or is my subject interesting? Or have I got enough games? And all that bollocks, which, which you know, massively dominated the idea space when it came to talking about behavior management, you know, and building a relationship. People always say build a relationship, but nobody tells you how. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and because people fall into this abyss of, you know, maybe I should make them laugh or maybe why don't they like me and all that rubbish. And it, and relationships are built on trust. Yeah. And trust is built on structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and to be trust to be trusted, you have to be trustworthy, which means being predictable. And that doesn't yeah. sound very interesting or exciting or glamorous or sexy, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's that level of predictability. And kids, for instance, from disadvantaged circumstances or with SCND or in people referral units or alternative provision, Children like that need, need to be able to trust their adults. Yeah. And they need that predictability even more than children who've already got advanced social skills. So it's, it's, it's a weird thing that we don't get taught this type of stuff. And, and I just remember thinking, this is something I need to, to write more and more and more about. And if it can help people, then God, God I absolutely hope so. But I did something that Doug Lamov also did. Now, Doug Lamov is, is one of the few people, Bill Rogers and another one, one of the few people who writes sensibly and succinctly about behavior management, and people should read them broadly and thoroughly. Yeah, um, you know, after reading my book, obviously. Um, but and he's written about your book here on the back. Rarely has anyone explained so clearly and provided as practical and beautiful a guide to accomplishing good behavior. So that well, was up on your book. He's a wise man. I, the thing, I mean, I've, I've never met Doug many, many times, and we, you know, we, we, we meet for dinner whenever he's over and vice versa. Um, if I've, you know, if I've seen further than other, it's only by standing on the shoulders of giants. And he really is a giant. I mean, he's about nine foot or something. He's extraordinary. Um, and one of the things that Doug did really well was he just went into lots and lots of schools which had high challenge but seemed to have really good behavior. I, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that's it. That's the sweet spot. I mean, I would also add schools which were quite inclusive. So while I am not anti, I'm very pro-exclusion, but not as the you know not as a sole method of of, of behavior management. Um, yeah, you, you you feel like it needs to be there as a tool in the armory, but you're not 
going out there saying exclude every child, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, which I think I, some people probably think you are sometimes well, this is incorrectly. Thing, well, because people are a bit stupid sometimes, and also they, they tend to believe their own um, their own uh, prejudices, and they also because I've read my stuff. They'll often yeah. think he's all about exclusions. You can't manage behaviour by exclusions. You don't just exclude every child that misbehaves. You'd get great behaviour, but you'd have no children. Yeah. And the rest of them would be wandering the streets and gangs. And mm-hmm. um, one of the most important things I think about exclusions is, is that they're only done when necessary. But when they're necessary, they're done. You know, and I think that that's my little aphorism I like to kind of spin out, and it's quite quite useful. But um, what Doug did was he went to lots of schools and just witnessed what people, good people were doing and said, Right, these are the 65 or whatever techniques that I think people do. And and it's brilliant because it's a great way of sharing professional expertise. And he really drilled down into things like how you hand out books mm-hmm. and how you how you remind someone to look at you and things like that. And I just thought this is brilliant because nobody's talking about this. But these are the the building blocks, these are the Lego bricks, if I may, of of, of running a classroom. And it's that empirical approach, isn't it? Of- Taking that knowledge from what what he's seen, and uh, and I know you've done the same with with your book because you've gone into so many schools with your role, you've taken on what you've seen from um, other schools that are doing things well and not so well, and yeah. kind of collated that all together rather than perhaps just the personal experience of you as someone who's really good at behaviour, well, writing is, about your own experience. Absolutely, and this is the opposite of what a professional body of knowledge needs to represent. Personal experience absolutely matters. Yeah. But you've got to remember that you are one data point in, 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 a, in a sea of data points. And it's incredibly important to triangulate your experiences with the experiences of others. You know, as I said before, if you go into a really, really privileged private school or, a, or in, in grammar school or something like that, and you might find the kids very biddable, and you might think that the reason why they're behaving is because you've got a wacky handshake with them first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, because I've built this relationship with my handshake. And it might just be because the kids are very biddable. You know, they're perfectly happy to take instructions from any adult who walks in the room. It's yeah. not you're doing. So it's really important to say, okay, let me try this in Grange Hill, not just Mallory Towers. Let me see, let me see what happens then. And of course, yeah. when you pull apart, you think, oh, back to the drawing board. Hypothesis was tested into extinction. And you've got to do that. So I think it's really important that we see beyond our own experiences and realize that we're talking about human behavior, not just that individual person's behavior. And while individual differences do matter, particularly with SEND, there are some things that we've got reasonable high levels of probability that we can talk about when we talk about most people and their behaviour. You touch upon that human element in the book as well, which is why I think I'm touching upon the human element quite a lot in this interview too, because I can see that in your in your writing style. But you've got um, you talk about the substitute teacher in the book and about how you know you may they might build a skill set where they can placate almost any class, um, you know, whether they're really uh, challenging or really good behaviour, they've they learned the set skills to to control or to at least delay that behaviour for long enough whilst, whilst they're there, but it's not necessarily a, a, a way to be really fulfilled and happy um, in, in the classroom. Whereas if you've got that structure and that culture that you can foster and, and develop for your own classroom over time, then then that's a way to, to build a, a, a career full of purpose. Mm. Um, do you think that's that's a fair assessment of? Yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, supply teachers. It's such a it's such a an interesting cohort because a lot of supply teachers are there because they because they can't get a job. I mean, not often through no fault of their own. I want to stress this, right? 
And that's a really wearing place to be because you don't get a chance to build up a, a structured relationship based on routines with mm-hmm. children. So lots of supply teachers go, well, they go one way or the other. Some supply teachers go to, go down the dark path, <laughs> the dark side of the force, and they basically just endure. They just walk into the classroom. They, they hand out the work, and if kids do it fine, if they don't do it fine, and then they leave at the end of the day and they take their paycheck. And it's usually because they've been so beaten and bruised mm-hmm. by constantly being exposed to kids telling them to F off or ignoring them that yeah. they get into the situation of, well, I'm just going to cope. This is my survival mechanism. That's an extreme example, but it is reasonably common. And then you get other supply teachers who have developed this kind of repertoire of really, I mean, this is the other end of the spectrum. They've developed a, a repertoire of, of, of um, really high-impact strategies to get attention, to maintain focus, to direct children's attention back to work and so on. Um, and, you know, it's often these people are some of the best teachers you'll ever meet. I've met some amazing supply teachers. They just think, my God, I'd love to employ you. And then the sad thing is they tend to get snapped up really quickly, so they get taken out of the food chain quite quickly. So there's a reason why you don't see many supply, too many supply teachers who are brilliant at that, because they, you know, because they tend to be more uh, vocationally mobile, shall we say. Um, but it's interesting watching And what they tend to do is they tend to... Um, lay out their stalls really, really quickly and give a very strong, quick impression that this lesson matters, the students matter, I matter, I care what you do, and I'm going to follow up on it, and I'm not going to back down. And, and here's what we're going to do. And it's that sense of order, structure, and purpose, which really tends to animate people. And you'll still get kids mucking about. It's not magic, but it, it gets many kids really far down the line. Whereas if you just walk in and say, right, here's, you know, where's the lesson plans? Are you sitting in the right seats? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. Is this a maths lesson? You know, if you're totally unprepared, the kids just go, oh boy, fresh meat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know we've touched upon um, exclusions just very briefly before, but yeah. I know this week, just this week, um, Anne Longfield, one of the government's former behaviour stars. Um, no, she was. Sorry? Anne Longfield was the children's commissioner. Oh, right. my, my mistake. But no, she... Uh, Behaviours ours were like Doctor Who. We just regenerate. The previous one, one prior to me was um, was Charlie Taylor. Oh, right. I see. Well, I know that she wrote in a report about exclusions in primary schools. Yes. Do you think there's uh, much of a distinction between the need for exclusion in primary and in secondary or, or not? Well, first of all, can I just frame this debate by saying primary schools almost never ex- permanently exclude a child. The average primary school excludes once every 15 to 16 years, right? This isn't, and, and that's not to you know, try to you know, minimize the, the, the issue, but rather to contextualize it. It's an incredibly rare thing. Mm. The vast majority of primary exclusions come from the secondary sector. And I just, I don't think that people at Longfield have got any credibility in this area. You know, they've never managed a class. They've never run a school. They don't know anything about schools apart from when they occasionally visit. To, to you know, to, to hand out a trophy, um, I I find it maddening that people with zero experience of high challenge school environments dare mm. to pontificate about what people should do in high challenge environments. It's I I, I just I, I don't I don't find it surprising because people have said stupid things since since there have been people, but what I do find frustrating is that people like that get airtime. In a sensible world, people like that would be standing in a street corner selling coloured pencils from a tin cup or barking, barking at trees in a forest. But no, they get um, on the front pages of the Times 
um, and and they get airtime on the six o'clock news. And I find it I find it sad because mm-hmm. we have to because teachers who have to deal with this behaviour um, have to endure listening to people say, "Well, this is what you should be doing." I I, I find it mad, and perhaps that's coming across in my in my in my tone here. Um, if you don't, I mean, she wants to ban permanent exclusions in primary schools. I mean, what a pitiless thing to say to a school where a child has sexually assaulted somebody else, which happens in primary schools, um, or to a child who's mercilessly bullied somebody to the point of wanting to take their own life. Mm. If you say you're not allowed to exclude that child, or the child that brings in a sharp knife and uses it on somebody, or the child that brings in a gun mm-hmm. you know, or, and waves it around in a classroom, and that's pretty rare, obviously, in the UK. But you know, but people who do things like that, yeah. Um, when it gets to the end of the line for a school and there's no more they can do to try to prevent that behaviour anymore, the only thing you can do is say, you cannot remain in this environment. I need to keep children safe. If you've got a child that starts dealing drugs in your classroom mm-hmm. and you say, I'm not going to exclude that child, you're basically saying it's okay to bring, that it's okay for your child to be exposed to someone selling them drugs. Yeah. That's not what I send my child to school for. And the weird thing is, they would never accept an environment like that for their own children. They would never. And, and as you say... It's incredibly, incredibly rare in in primary school settings uh, to have there. permanent exclusions. So it's only really for extreme cases um, where where this already happens. The vast majority of, of people who pontificate about banning exclusions um, would never send a child to a school that needed to exclude. They send their children to grammar schools and independent schools. They're the people that end up in the press. Uh, and, and, and I just I find it, I find it contemptible that somebody would 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 dare to speak about something over which they have so little experience, and whose net, the net result of which could potentially be exposing children to unimaginable levels of cruelty. Shame mm. on them. Well, it's fair yeah, to say you've got a very strong opinion about I went, that. And I went for a wee bit, yes. <laughs> but you know, you're clearly incredibly passionate about. Um, about behaviour management, and rightly so, because it is something that can affect um, not just teachers' experience, but the children's experience uh, within a whole classroom or a whole school. Um, it can negatively affect, uh, you know, a whole cohort if it's not if it's not dealt with correctly, and it can negatively affect careers of of teachers yeah. and head teachers. You know, we have a we have a real issue at the moment with teachers and head teachers leaving the profession because um, of workload and lots yeah. of other, and lots of other issues. So. Um, and behaviour management is one of those really important parts of, of creating that culture where teachers feel safe and happy to work in. Um, so I would, like I said before, I'd recommend to anyone listening to this podcast to take the time to read, read your book cover to cover. Um, and actually at the back of the book, I think you summed up really quite beautifully the the antithesis of teaching, so the the, the kind of, the ability for it to provide purpose, but also the, the challenge and the innate um, difficulties with it. Uh, it's in your final thoughts. And if you if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read this out for our listeners. But you said, far too frequently, I bang on about how much teaching saved me, gave me direction, purpose and meaning to my previously aimless and somewhat banal existence. But it is a testing profession and its demands can break you especially if you care about doing it well. It is a job based on repetition, the metronomes of the timetable, the curriculum, and the tidal rhythm of the school year breathing in and out, but also one that surprises you every day. It offers you a front row seat to the wonders of human imagination while exposing you to every act of petty malice, 
you can imagine. It is both the Lord's work and paperwork at the same time. It is a thankless task and a cornucopia of eternal reward. And I honestly, that that paragraph just stuck with me. I thought it was beautiful. It really summed up the 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 beauty of teaching and also the the innate challenge within it. And I think anyone who reads this this your book will think will will think you know what Tom really gets it. He's he's lived through it all. And um, uh, and this is full of pra- practical advice and wisdom um, to help people to to get on with uh, managing behaviour in their classrooms. You're a kind man. Thank you. But that's a very nice thing to say. And you should do the audiobook for me next time. You read that. <laughs> I don't know if my voice is quite soothing enough. I think you need to get that guy from Game of Thrones, Dora uh, <laughs> Mormont. Get him to read it, then, or, or Tom Hardy or someone like that. Stephen Fry or somebody. Actually, I've just recorded the audiobook of it. Yeah. Uh, it took me four days. And it's funny, I, mean, I love the book, but after four days, I'm thinking, right, I've had enough. I've had enough. And actually, that last paragraph, which is the final paragraph of the book, it was, I remember thinking, oh, that's quite nice. I don't, I don't mind reading this bit. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was, I think it really just summed up that, um, those conflicting sides, because you're not afraid to talk about the, the bad sides of teaching oh, as well as the goods uh, the, uh, it, it, it is the best job in the world and the worst job in the world and you kind yeah, of yeah, some, and if you don't talk about that people will just leave when they find out oh god people, people a lot of people start teaching because they've seen dead poet society yeah. and they imagine that children will leap onto their desks shouting oh captain my captain right yeah, yeah. and when they don't they think oh my god this is terrible it's awful. no don't prepare them for that not to happen yeah. And you'll get your moments. I mean, they might not jump on the desks, but your kids will come up to you and say, you know, I really learned a lot, or you'll see the difference you made to people's lives. Um, and that's good enough. That's good yeah. enough. Well, it's been such a pleasure and an honour to, to no, spend this time speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. I think it's fair to say as well, you have um, webinars, training webinars around running the room um, currently running, don't you, that people yes, can get yes. involved in? You, see, you can see the link at the top of my Twitter. Um, I do uh, webinars kind of once a month and I go into schools all the time now. Uh, and I'm currently helping the DFE rewrite the behaviour guidance for schools and the exclusions guidance for schools. So as you can imagine, that's not controversial in the slightest. And we've got <laughs> multiple research heads coming up around the world. So yeah. keep your eyes peeled. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tom. Hopefully we can chat again sometime. Uh, and if I see you at a conference, we can have a, a coffee or a whiskey or something. A coffee or a whiskey. I like the option. Both. Great. They love to speak to you. All right. All the best. Bye.